Hey everyone, it's me, Andrew. I hope you guys enjoyed season one of Creepypasta Myths. I'm back now and I kind of wanted to do a collaboration of all the creepy readings I did. So for the next two hours, you guys will enjoy all of the original season one creepy readings that I did. And I hope you guys enjoy them. I kind of tweaked some here and there. Not a lot but something. But I hope you guys might enjoy it if you're going to sleep or if you have a long road trip or something. Maybe this two-hour episode could help you out even more. But before we get to the reading tonight, I hope all of you are healthy and safe from the coronavirus that's affecting all of us in one way or another. I mean, even with me, I'm out of a job right now. We don't know when it will end, but just please be safe, wash your hands, and practice social distancing, okay? On this season, we'll be focusing only on creepy readings, SCP Unknown, and the occasional Conspiracy Unplugged segments with uh, me and my friends Madison and Henry. And you guys know them very well. I want to say thank you to all of my fans and the people who follow me and listen to the podcast. You guys are amazing. And please do a review if you haven't. If you're on Spotify, I understand. But if you have Apple Podcast, please go on there and do a review. It helps me out a lot. And again, sorry if a lot of people are saying that I'm spamming my content or spamming my name on people's reviews. I'm only doing that on reviews that or channels that are basically dead, that they haven't posted in a year or two. And I feel bad for the people that go there and they're like, man, these stories are amazing, but there's nothing else. So I'm like, hey, I gave them five stars and I'm like, if you guys want to come over to my channel, I have some, you know, creepy pastas and other stuff you might like. So again, I apologize if anyone is offended by that, even for the negative stars. Uh, I love you guys, even though you don't really love me. So <laughs> it's all good, but. Thank you again, and let's make Season 2 something memorable. Let's begin. I'm a 911 operator. Just had the most terrifying call. 911, what is your emergency? Yeah, hi. Um, This is going to sound kind of strange, but there's a man stumbling around in circles in my front yard. Could you repeat that, sir? He looks sick, or lost, or drunk, or something. I just woke up to get a glass of water and heard snow crunching around underneath my front window, so I peeked out. I'm looking at him now. He's about ten yards away from my window. Something's not right. What is your address, sir? 1617 Quarry Lane in Pinella Pass. I'm gonna send a squad car your way, but that's quite a ways out. Are you alone in your house, sir? Yes, I'm alone. Can you confirm that all of your doors and windows are locked? Stay on the phone with me. I know that my front is definitely locked, but I'll go check my back door again real quick. Also, I appreciate your help. By the way, I know this is kind of strange, but I really hope that... <laughs> Sir, are you still there? He's... he's still in the yard, but he's... what the hell? He's upside down. Sir? Stay on with me. What is happening? 
He's staring right at me. But he's... He's standing on his hands now. He's perfectly still. Staring straight at me. He's doing a handstand. And he's smiling at me and not moving. He's... He's doing a handstand, sir? I... I don't know. He... Yeah, he's, he's facing me and standing on his hands. He's got his huge smile and he's perfectly still. What the hell? Please get someone out here now! Sir, I need you to remain calm. I put out a call and an officer is on his way. His teeth are so huge. What the hell? Please help me! Sir, I want you to try and keep an eye on him. But make sure your back door is locked again. We need to make sure all possible access points are secured. Can you talk me through and confirm that your back door is locked? Okay. I'm walking backwards now and keeping him in my sight. My hand is on the back doorknob now. It's locked. I need to check the deadbolt, so I'm going to take my eyes off of him for one split second. Alright, sir. Help is on the way. Just stay on the phone with me. Everything's going to be alright. Sir? Sir? Sir, are you still there? He's... His face... It's up against the class. Sir, I need you to speak up. What's happening? I looked away for a split second and now... His face... It's pressed up against the front window. His teeth are huge. And he's still smiling. There's no color in his eyes. Jesus, please help me. Why is it just standing there? Sir, I need you to go to the nearest room and lock yourself inside of it. Do you have a basement or bedroom that you can lock yourself in? He won't stop staring. He's going to hurt me. Sir, I need you to listen to me. Lock yourself somewhere safe until the officer arrives at your house. Can you hear me? I, I, yes, yes, I'm, I'm going to lock myself in my room. And are you positive that you are alone in your house, correct? Yes, I'm alone in the house. Wait a moment. He's moving. He's shaking his head. He's telling me no. He can hear us. He's telling me I'm not alone. Sir. Sir, are you still there? I heard a loud noise. Is everything alright? Sir? Sir? Babysitting on Halloween Written by Edwin Crow. 25 an hour to look after two children I wasn't going to let that down It was Halloween night and I had grown out of it but it didn't stop their parents from going to a Halloween party on their own. I followed Janet upstairs. She whispered as she opened the door to Bobby's room. That's Bobby. He won't cause you any trouble. He sleeps through the night. I squinted to see the boy who laid in the almost darkness in the bed. She closed the door quietly. The only sound, the click of the barrel engaging the lock. This is Alice, she said as we entered her room. She was still awake. This is Helen. She's going to look after you tonight. I kneeled down next to her. The sheets were pulled up to her face. Hi, Alice. I soothed, stroking her hair gently. I looked around the room. Wow, you really like dolls. She nodded. The whole room was decorated with them. 
At least 100. I didn't want to tell her they freaked me out. They look amazing, she smiled. Alice's mom gestured for us to leave. Good night, Alice, I said as the door was closed behind us. Thank you so much for doing this at such a short notice. You came to us with such a good recommendation. I must say, Alice, it's a little clingy. We don't get out often. That's okay. I had a younger sister myself. She was a real pain. Have you tried leaving her with family? We don't have much. Just my mother. But she's a little senile now. It's too much of a risk to leave Alice alone with her. We need to get going. I heard Alice's father shout from the bottom of the stairs. Coming, Janet said quietly. We will see you around 1 a.m. I hope that's still okay. Yes, that's fine. I sat in the living room as Alice's parents raced around the downstairs putting the finishing touches to their costumes. See you later, Janet said. The dad hovered for a moment as if conflicted. Alice, he said before stopping. She's a little different. She likes to make things up. We're going to be late, Janet hollered from the outside. Be careful, he said closing the door behind him. I flinched as I heard the key turn in the lock. I pulled the deadbolt shut. The house was suddenly silent. I waited for the sounds of the car door closing and the vehicle leaving, but I didn't. An unease filled me. I sat on the couch in the living room, dimly lit by a small lamp that stood in the corner. It sent elongated shadows that projected into the surface of the furniture. I checked my Twitter feed for a bit, feeling at a loose end. There was a knock at the door that startled me. I got up and checked the spy hole, expecting one of the parents had forgotten something. Instead, a small boy stood there. I placed my phone on the table in the entryway and picked up the bowl of sweets, then unlocked the door. I squatted down. Hello there, would you like some candy? I thrust the bowl out in front of him. He took a second to look down, and then he gazed back at me. He violently shook his head. Okay, where are your parents? He stood in silence. In a whisper, he asked, Can I come in? I don't know who you are, sorry. Do you need me to call someone? I turned to pick up my phone. Do you know your parents' number? I asked. When I turned back, the boy was gone. I swiftly shut the door and scanned the house. I wondered if the child had rushed inside when I wasn't looking. I returned to the couch, wary that an intruder might be in the house. Before I could get my phone, I heard footsteps on the stairs. Alice emerged. I'm scared, she said. I saw the growing dark patch in her pajamas. Oh, honey, it's okay, I said, jumping out of my seat and running over to hug her. What happened? Bobby, she said. I stepped back. Did he come into your room? She nodded. Let's get you cleaned up. I took her hand and led her upstairs. Her door was ajar. Where are your clean clothes? I asked. She pointed to the dresser, barely lit by the landing night. I opened the drawers, one at a time, until I found some clean pajamas. Where are the towels? She pointed to the bathroom. I entered and picked up a clean towel that rested on the radiator. The fabric was warm to the touch. I cleaned her off and she got into her fresh clothes. Her bed sheets were dry, so I put her back to bed. Are you okay now? She nodded. I stayed for a moment stroking her hair. My eyes drifted to the dolls. All of them were facing the walls. Alice, why are all the dolls facing the other way? They were scared too. I noticed my pulse had increased and slightly clammy wetness gathered around my brow. I pretended I was fine. Are they scared now? She shook her head. Can I turn them back around? She nodded again. 
One by one, I turned the dolls. Not by their heads, Ella said, slightly annoyed. I don't know if it was her tone or the fact that she saw another inanimate object, but I relented. Can I have Jilly? She asked. Which one's Jilly? She pointed to the one in the corner. Its dress was threadbare and the hair was falling out. Are you sure you want that one and not this one? I picked up a really nice looking one in a pink dress. She shook her head. I gave her the dolly. She held it tight and before I knew it, she was falling asleep again. I picked up that soiled clothes, smelling the familiar scent of ammonia. The pajamas were damp. I closed the door and then peeked into Bobby's room. He was fast asleep, just like when I saw him earlier. I jumped as I heard the door to Alice's room violently shake. I dropped the clothes and opened the door. Alice was fast asleep. My heart was racing. An ice-cold chill tingled down my spine as I saw all the dolls were facing the wall again. Jilly now sat on the top of Alice's tall chest of drawers, peering into the room, way too high for Alice to have put it there. Alice? I said in a hushed tone. All I heard was an ever-so-slight snore. I contemplated turning the lights and the dolls back again, but I didn't. They scared me. On edge, I closed the door, feeling all the more alone. As I descended the stairs, I heard another knock at the door. I picked up the bowl of candy and unlocked. An old woman stood there. Who are you? She asked politely. I'm Helen. What are you doing in my house? I'm sorry? I questioned. Who are you? I'm Eunice, Alice's grandmother. I remember what Janet told me. Hi, Eunice. Could you let me in? I'm not sure that's a good idea. Do her parents know you're visiting? I'm not visiting, she said, upset. I really cannot let you in. Alice is in trouble, she said. She's fine. She's sleeping upstairs. No, her brother will try and hurt her. I think I've got this. She moved toward the door and I slammed it in her face. As soon as I did, I felt a pang of remorse. I double locked the door and peered through the spy hole. She still stood there. I picked up my phone and dialed Janet's number. I jumped as I heard the ringtone from the inside of the house. I kept the call open, searching the house for the ringing phone. I saw the bright phone lit up in the kitchen as I went to answer the phone. It hung up. I checked Janet's phone to see many missed calls from mother. A large bang reverberated through the house. It came from upstairs. I dropped the phone and ran. Alice's door was open. I rushed inside to see her eyes wide open. Her bed was covered in dolls. What happened? Bobby, she said between gasps. What about him? He came into my room. It's okay. He's your brother. What's wrong? He's under my bed. All the dolls were sat facing Alice. She couldn't have done this herself and gotten into bed. I kneeled down and peered under. I jumped when I saw a pair of eyes stare back at me. It was Jilly. It's only Jilly, I said, picking her up and giving her to Alice. She shook her head before hugging it tightly. Apprehensively, I returned my gaze. There was something else under there, breathing heavily. Bobby? I asked. Another set of eyes opened. My body went numb. Petrified, I asked again. B Bobby? Is that you? He nodded. Why is she scared of me? I don't know. I said, lifting my head up. Why are you scared of Bobby? She began to cry. I looked under again. 
Will you come out? He wasn't there. I ran into his room and turned on his light. He was still asleep in his bed. Bobby? I asked, knowing I didn't want to know the answer. Gently, I pulled back the sheets. He didn't move. I placed my hand on his shoulder and turned him into his back. I screamed. I heard footsteps rush up the stairs. You saw him, didn't you? Janet asked from the landing, her eyes pregnant with tears. I stood there, my lips quivering. She saw him, Harold. You did? The father asked. Janet held her hands together in delight. I stole a final look at the mummified body in the bed. What did he say? I said nothing. Helen, please tell us. Why is... Why is Alice scared of him? Alice saw him? They rushed into her room. I didn't know what to do. Why were they there? What the hell was in the bed? Janet shrieked as if I pulled off a daze. I ran into Alice's room. The dolls were gone, and so was Alice. Where is she? Janet shouted to me. I don't know. She was there a minute ago. I was just in here. What did you do to her? Why are her pajamas on the floor? Harold blasted. She wet herself, I said in defense. Nonsense! I ran down the stairs and stopped as I looked into the living room. Eunice was sitting on the couch, stroking Alice's hair. All the dolls were spread around the living room, all pointed to look at Alice. Don't run away from me, Harold said, plunging down the stairs. He stopped too. Janet, she's here! He pushed past me and into the living room. Stop! Eunice said, putting her arm around Alice. What are you doing here? Protecting her from Bobby. Janet arrived and her anger subsided. Hello, honey, she said, creeping into the living room. You have to get rid of that thing up there. Mother, he's only sleeping. No, he isn't, Eunice said. He's dead. You have to move past this. My gaze was drawn to the corner of the room. I saw a scared little boy shake. Do you see him now? Janet asked me expectantly. Bobby began to cry and shook his head violently. I copied him. I think it's best you leave, Harold said. I picked up my coat, my hand shaking, trying to unlock the door. Calmly, he placed his hand on mine, taking the key. He opened the door. Here, he said, handing me a large wad of cash. It was at least 500 euros. Please don't mention what happened tonight. I nodded and ran for my car. I locked the door as soon as I got in. I jumped when I saw the little boy stand next to the window. I opened it. Hi, Bobby, I said. In a whisper, he asked, Can I come in? I shook my head as a single tear rolled down my cheek. Be a good boy, will you? He nodded. I pulled away, looking in the rear view to see an empty street. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.
Clogged, written by Anonymous. The disposal is clogged again. It isn't a terrible surprise. No one in this house seems to understand that they can't get grinds of spoons to a drainable pump. As much as I hate to do so, I roll up my sleeve and I stick my hand down the disposal. At this time, I always second-guess the wiring. That's normal, I suppose. We're all pretty attached to our limb. Is this hair? Matted up chunks of black hair all entwined in the mechanics of the disposal. I turn my head and push deeper into the disposal until I notice a smiling two-foot figure sitting on the counter. My daughter's realistic dolls always give me the willies. Why is it up there? I turn to look at the drain once more. It's too dark to see anything in there. I hear the sound of rustling cloth and quick light footsteps. I turn my head again expecting my daughter to be there, but instead the doll was standing by the light switch. I can now see the patch of black hair missing from the back of her head. I look down towards the drain with a sudden realization that I need to pull my hand out now. I hear another rustle and a click of the flip switch. Hero Brime, written by Anonymous. I had recently spawned a new world in single-player Minecraft. Everything was normal at first. I began chopping down trees and crafting a workbench. I noticed something moved amongst the dense fog. I have a very slow computer, so I have to play with a tiny render distance. I thought it was a cow, so I pursued it, hoping to grab some hide for armor. It wasn't a cow, though. Looking back at me was another character with the default skin, but... His eyes were empty. I saw no name pop up, and I double-checked to make sure I wasn't in multiplayer mode. He didn't stay long. He looked at me and quickly ran into the fog. I pursued out of curiosity, but he was gone. I continued on with the game, not sure what to think. As I expected the world, I saw things that seemed out of place for the random map generator to make 2x2 two two tunnels in the rocks. Small perfect pyramids made out of sand in the ocean, and grooves of trees with all of their leaves cut off. I would constantly think I saw the other player in the fog, but I never got a better look at him. I tried increasing my render distance to far whenever I thought I saw him, but it was to no avail. I saved the map and went on to forums to see if anyone else has found this mysterious player. There were none. I created my own topic telling of the man and asking if anyone had a similar experience. The post was deleted within five minutes. I tried again and the topic was deleted even faster. I received a PM from a user named Herobrime containing one word. STOP! When I went to look at Herobrime's profile, the page 404, I received an email from another form user. He claimed the mods can read the form user's messages, so we were safer using email. The emailer claimed that he had seen the mysterious player too and had a small directory on other users who had seen him as well. Their worlds were littered with obviously man-made features as well, and described their mysterious player to have no pupils. About a month passed until I heard from my informant again. Some of the people who had encountered the mysterious man had looked into the name Herobrime, and found that that name to be frequently used by a Swedish gamer. After some further information gathering, it was revealed to be the brother of Notch, the game's developer. 
I personally emailed Notch and asked him if he had a brother. It took him a while, but he emailed me back a very short message. It read, I did, but he is no longer with us. Notch. I haven't seen the mysterious player since our first encounter, and I haven't noticed any changes to the world other than my own. I was able to press print screen when I first saw him. Here's the only evidence of his existence. Hoodie, written by Anonymous. Have you ever been influenced by clothing? I don't mean confidence by looks. Have you ever been given more control than ever by an item, or a truth, or just a favorite shirt? Have you ever been influenced in the worst way by showing the truth? The following is taken directly from journal entries. The entries were written by a notorious but unknown killer. He is notorious in the means that everyone has seen his work. He is unknown because nobody knows that he has done it. His origin is unusual. No troubles, no evil family, no magic or paranormal forces. His life was chosen by him and him alone. His identity is also unknown. He will be named from here on out as the Hooded Man. April 3rd, 2004 it's been really cold around here. I don't have anything really to cover myself. All I have are my t-shirts and jeans, so today I decided to get a jacket. I was just in a local store. Nothing special. It's a black hoodie with a white lining. I think it looks pretty cool. And when I tried it on, the attendant said it suits me fine. So I bought it. I haven't taken it off yet. Not only is it warm, but I can really see myself doing amazing things in it. When I look at the mirror... I smirk. I feel amazing. I can't really explain it, but I, I like it. I really like it. I feel the need to put my hood up. Something about the hood has a way of masking a person. Even though it shows their face, it hides something, somewhere. It's really late right now. I've been feeling so great all day. Time flew around me. I'll have to explain more tomorrow. April 10th. I've had a hell of a week. I felt so great. I walked the halls like a big shot. I'm sure I look smug. That's why Jack challenged me. He was so angry. Who never knew ignoring an insult was more insulting than responding with a shrewd comment about someone's family. He antagonized me. He asked for it. He threw a hard punch and I stood. It stung harder than before, but when I actually argued with him, I felt so cool all week. My confidence kept me up. I punched him hard in the stomach and lifted him up with an underhook. It felt so good. It really did. Parents calling. April 14th. Jack still isn't out of the hospital. They said he's in a lot of pain. He's been out a lot of blood. His parents told me over the phone. I reflected on it. On how great it felt when my fist connected. How his cracked screams sounded. That's good to hear. I said blankly. I don't care about Jack. I smiled at his pain. I kept staring. I kept staring at my mirror. I'm always wearing my favorite hoodie. It feels so... empowering. My friends would laugh at me when I... when I would tell them that. They would compare me to Spider-Man and his black suit. Spider-Man threw his power away. I don't plan on doing anything with my source of confidence. 
April 22nd. Jack has gone to a better place. The words rang through my ear. He's dead. He lost too much blood. His father told me the day I visited that he was losing blood due to a personal health condition. But the way his mother looked at me told me the real story. I killed him. I still remember the satisfaction of hitting him. I never wanted to kill him. I need to think about what I've done, right? That'll fix my feelings. But what is there to think about? Regret is a foolish emotion. I don't need regret. April 24th. Dad has been avoiding me lately, and my mom just tells me she loves me. They both want me to feel endless guilt, but I won't. Or rather, I can't. I can fake it for the public, but the truth is, is I'm not sorry. Spider-Man's story is starting to make me think more. But why would a cursed or possessed hoodie land in my possession? Everybody who knew Jack glares at me. Everyone who I would talk to have transferred themselves out of my class or went to a different school. Teachers don't look at me much or get on to me if I'm breaking any rules. Today I threw a pencil at my history teacher. It hit his shoulder. He just froze for a second and continued what he was doing. Everyone either hates me and probably wants me dead or they fear me. My writing is the only comfort I have. I can be at peace and let myself go. April 25th. They provoked me. They threatened me. I had no choice. They, they would have killed me. My hood protected my face. The knife naturally moved from Rob's hand to mine. I didn't mean to. The writing was a short line at this point. April 30th. Five days. Five days being interrogated and sleeping in a cell. They decided I was only defending myself. I can hear my mom and dad talking. They want me gone. They're both scared. I was an idiot to think that this jacket of mine was possessing me or changing my personality. It's just a really cool jacket. I love how it looks. I feel like such a badass. I remember how to put the hood up. I put it up when Jack challenged me. I put it up when those guys tried to kill me. I feel no remorse. I feel indifferent. I'm in control. I have finally come to realize insanity. I want to kill them. All of them. I need only a push and the confidence to fight. I got it. Mom and Dad are irritating me. They all irritated me. Licking. Written by Anonymous. My great-grandmother lived alone up in the mountain at her cabin. Her husband was dead, so she was there all alone. She only had one companion, and that was her loving dog. They both adored each other, and the dog was a great comfort to her. Every night when she went to bed, the dog would lick her hand to let her know that he was there to protect her. One night, she had gone to bed and the dog had licked her hand like he had done routinely every night since her husband died. But this night was different. She had woken up in the middle of the night because she heard her dog whimpering. She wanted to comfort him and let her know she was right there for him. So she stuck her hand out by the bed 
and she felt the dog gently lick her hand like always. She figured he was just cold, so she went back to sleep. The dog's whimpering had woken her up a second time in the night, so she stuck her hand out. The dog licked it, and she went back to sleep. This happened a third time, and she stuck her hand out, and the dog stopped whimpering and came and licked her hand. She stayed awake a few moments afterwards, and she went back to sleep again. In the morning, she woke up and stuck her hand out by the bed, but nothing was licking her hand. She thought that the dog had already awakened and was just in front of the room. She rolled over and got out of bed and heard a drip. 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 She thought the sound was coming from the kitchen, so she walked over and turned the handles on the sink faucet. But it wasn't the source of the noise. After checking the sink and its pipes, she gave up and continued into her bathroom to take a shower. As she got closer to the bathroom door, it was evident that the sound was coming from within. She opened the door, looked above the bathtub, and gasped in utter horror. There, hanging from the light by his collar, was her loving companion. His blood was dripping into the bathtub. She screamed and began to cry. Wiping her eyes and sobbing, she turned and looked into the mirror. In the mirror, she saw the dog's reflection, and written on the mirror in her dog's blood, with drips and streaks hanging down from each letter, were the words, Humans can lick too. <laughs> Mentality, written by Anonymous. They perfected a chip that when implanted into your brain would allow you to read the thoughts of others. At first, everyone was excited. They all clamored around eagerly to get the first few. As soon as they were proved reliable, anyone who could afford it bought one. At first, it seemed perfect. Murderers and criminals were caught easily, and you could judge how a relationship could go on the first date. But we're all human. We think things we don't mean during arguments and fights. And so the chip began to cause strains and rifts between family and friends. There was a petition to get the chips removed, which was successful. Unfortunately, their brains had been altered by the chip. They couldn't stop hearing people's thoughts. Online support groups popped up and scientists everywhere began researching ways to reverse the effect. It turned out that someone random on Reddit had the answer. Circular reasoning, maybe. But this solution worked. If you think about it, what it's doing to you when you think, you stop hearing other people's thoughts. I was always poor. I could never afford the chip. But I have learned that if you spend all your time thinking about your brain, your own isn't enough. I can hear them moaning and shuffling outside my door right now, desperate for mine. Mr. Widemouth, written by Perfect Circle 35. 
During my childhood, my family was like a drop of water in the vast river, never remaining in one location for long. We settled in Rhode Island when I was eight, and there we remained until I went to college in Colorado Springs. Most of my memories are rooted in Rhode Island, but there are fragments in the attic of my brain which belong to the various homes we had lived in when I was much younger. Most of these memories are unclear and pointless, chasing after another boy in the backyard of a house in North Carolina, or trying to build a raft to float on the creek behind the apartment we rented in Pennsylvania, and so on. But there is one set of memories which remain as clear as glass, as though they were just made yesterday. I often wonder whether these memories are simply lucid dreams produced by long sickness I experienced in the spring, but in my heart, I know they are real. We were living in a house just outside the bustling metropolis of New Vineyard, Maine, population 643. It was a large structure, especially for a family of three. There were a number of rooms that I didn't see in the five months we resided there. In some ways, it was a waste of space, but it was the only house on the market at that time, at least within an hour's commute to my father's workplace. The day after my fifth birthday, attended by my parents alone, I came down with a fever. The doctor said I had mononucleosis, which meant no rough play and more fever for at least another three weeks. It was horrible timing to be bedridden. We were in the process of packing our things to move to Pennsylvania, and most of my things were already packed away in boxes, leaving my room barren. My mother brought me ginger ale and a book several times a day, and these served the function of being my primary form of entertainment for the next weeks. Boredom always loomed just around the corner waiting to rear its ugly head and compound my misery. I don't exactly recall how I met Mr. Widemouth. I think it was about a week after I was diagnosed with mono. My first memory of the small creature was asking him if he had a name. He told me to call him Mr. Widemouth because his mouth was large. In fact, everything about him was large in comparison to his body, his head, his eyes, his crooked ears but his mouth was by far the largest. You look like, kind of, like a furvy, I said as he flipped through one of my books. Mr. Widemouth stopped and gave me a puzzled look. Furby? What's a furby? He asked. I shrugged. You know, the toy? The little robot with big ears? You can pet and feed them, almost like real pets. Oh! Mr. Widemouth resumed his activity. You don't need one of those. They aren't the same as having a real friend. I remember Mr. Widemouth disappearing every time my mother stopped by to check on me. I lay under your bed, he later explained. I don't want your parents to see me because I'm afraid they won't let us play anymore. We didn't do much during those few days. Mr. Widemouth just looked at my books, fascinated by the stories and pictures they contained. The third or fourth morning after I met him, he greeted me with a large smile on his face. I have a new game we can play, he said. We have to wait until your mother comes to check on you, because she can't see us play it. It's a secret game. After my mother delivered more books and soda at the usual time, Mr. Widemouth slipped out from under the bed and tugged my hand. We have to go to the room at the end of the hallway, he said. I objected at first, as my parents had forbidden me to leave my bed without their permission, but Mr. Widemouth persisted until I gave in. 
The room in question had no furniture or wallpaper. Its only distinguishing feature was a window opposite of the doorway. Mr. Widemouth darted across the room and gave the window a firm push, flinging it open. He then beckoned me to look out at the ground below. We were on the second story of the house, but it was on a hill, and from his angle, the drop was farther than two stories due to the incline. I like to play pretend up here, Mr. Widemouth explained. I pretend that there is a big, soft trampoline below this window, and I jump. If you pretend hard enough, you'll bounce back like a feather. I want you to try. I was a five-year-old with a fever, so only a hint of skepticism started through my thoughts as I looked down and considered the possibility. It's a long drop, I said. But that's all part of the fun. It wouldn't be fun if it wasn't only a short drop. If it were that way, you might as well just bounce on a real trampoline. I toyed with the idea, picturing myself falling through thin air only to bounce back to the window on something unseen by human eyes, but the realist in me prevailed. Maybe some other time, I said. I don't know if I have enough imagination. I could get hurt. Mr. Widemouth's face contorted into a snarl, but only for a moment. Anger gave away to disappointment. If you say so, he said. He spent the rest of the day under my bed, quiet as a mouse. The following morning, Mr. Widemouth arrived holding a small box. I want to teach you how to juggle, he said. Here are some things you can use to practice before I start giving you lessons. I looked in the box. It was full of knives. My parents would kill me, I shouted, horrified that Mr. Widemouth had brought me knives into my room, objects that my parents would never allow me to touch. I'll be spanked and grounded for a year. Mr. Widemouth frowned. It's fun to juggle with these. I I want you to try it. I pushed the box away. I can't. I'll get in trouble. Knives aren't safe to just throw in the air. Mr. Widemouth's frown deepened into a scowl. He took the box of knives and slid under my bed, remaining there the rest of the day. I began to wonder how often he was under me. I started having trouble sleeping after that. Mr. Widemouth often woke me up at night, saying he put a real trampoline under the window, a big one, one that I couldn't see in the dark. I always declined and tried to go back to sleep, but Mr. Widemouth persisted. Sometimes he stayed by my side until early in the morning, encouraging me to jump. He wasn't so fun to play with anymore. My mother came to me one morning and told me I had her permission to walk outside. She thought the fresh air would be good for me especially after being confined in my room for so long. Ecstatic, I put on my sneakers and trotted out to the back porch, yearning for that feeling of sun on my face. Mr. Widemouth was waiting for me. I have something I want you to see, he said. I must have given him a weird look, because he then said, It's safe, I promise. I followed him in the beginning of a deer trail, which ran through the woods behind the house. This is an important path, he explained. I've had a lot of friends about your age. When they were ready, I took them down this path to a special place. You aren't ready yet, but one day, I hope to take you there. I returned to the house wondering what kind of place lay beyond that trail. Two weeks after I met Mr. Widemouth, the last load of our things had been packed into a moving truck. 
I would be in the cab of that truck, sitting next to my father for the long drive to Pennsylvania. I considered telling Mr. Widemouth that I would be leaving, but even at five years old, I was beginning to suspect that perhaps the creature's intentions were not to my benefit, despite what he had said otherwise. For this reason, I decided to keep my departure a secret. My father and I were in the truck at 4 a.m. He was hoping to make it into Pennsylvania by lunchtime tomorrow with the help of the endless supply of coffee and a six-pack of energy drinks. He seemed more like a man who was about to run a marathon rather than one who was about to spend two days sitting still. Early enough for you? He asked. I nodded and placed my head against the window, hoping to get some sleep before the sun came up. I felt my father's hand on my shoulder. This is the last move, son. I promise. I know it's hard for you, as sick as you've been. Once daddy's got promoted, we can settle down and you can make friends. I opened my eyes and we backed out of the driveway. I saw Mr. Widemouth's silhouette in my bedroom window. He stood motionless until the truck was about to turn into the main road. He gave a pitiful little wave goodbye, steak knife in hand. I didn't wave back. Years later, I returned to New Vineyard. The piece of land of our house stood upon was empty except for the foundation. As the house burned down a few years ago, after my family left. Out of curiosity, I followed the deer trail that Mr. Widemouth had shown me. Part of me expected him to jump out from behind a tree and scare the living bejesus out of me, but I felt that Mr. Widemouth was gone, somehow tied into the house that no longer existed. The trail ended at the New Vineyard Memorial Cemetery. I noticed that many of the tombstones belonged to children. The Russian Sleep Experiment, written by Anonymous. Russian researchers in the late 1940s kept five people awake for 15 days using an experimental gas-based supplement. They were kept in a sealed environment to carefully monitor their oxygen intake so that the gas didn't kill them, as it was toxic in high concentrations. This was before closed-circuit cameras, so they only had microphones and 5-inch thick glass porthole-sized windows into the chambers to monitor them. The chamber was stocked with books, beds to sleep on, but no bedding, running water and toilet, and enough dried food to last all five for over a month. The test subjects were political prisoners deemed enemies of the state during World War II. Everything was fine for the first five days. The subjects hardly complained, even promised falsely that they were being freed if they submitted to the test and did not sleep for 30 days. Their conversations and activities were monitored, and it was noted that they continued to talk about increasingly traumatic incidences in their past, and the general tone of their conversations took on a darker aspect after the fourth day mark. After five days, they started to complain about the circumstances and events that led them to where they were, and started to demonstrate severe paranoia. They stopped talking to each other and began alternately whispering to the microphones in one-way mirrored portholes. Oddly, they all seemed to think that they could win the trust of the experimenters by turning over their comrades, the other subjects, in captivity with them. At first, the researchers suspected that this was an effect of the gas itself. After nine days, the first of them started screaming. He ran the length of the chamber repeatedly yelling at the top of his lungs for three hours straight. He continued attempting to scream, but he was only able to produce occasional squeaks. 
The researchers postulated that he had physically torn his vocal cords. The most surprising thing about his behavior is how the other captives reacted to it, or rather didn't react to it. They continued whispering to the microphones until the second of the captives started to scream. The two non-screaming captives took the books apart, smeared page after page with their own feces, and pasted it calmly over the glass portholes. The screaming promptly stopped. So did the whispering to the microphones. After three more days passed, the researchers checked the microphones hourly to make sure that they were working, since they thought it would be impossible that no sound could be coming with two five people inside. The oxygen consumption in the chamber indicated that all five still must be alive. In fact, it was the amount of oxygen five people would consume in a very heavy level of strenuous exercise. On the morning of the 14th day, the researchers did something they said they would not do to get a reaction from the captives. They used the intercom inside the chamber, hoping to provoke any response from the captives they were afraid were either dead or vegetables. They announced, We are opening the chamber to test the microphones. Step away from the door and lay flat on the floor or you will be shot. Compliance will earn one of you your immediate freedom. To their surprise, they heard a single phrase in a calm voice response. We no longer want to be freed. Debate broke out amongst the researchers and the military force funding the research, unable to provoke any more response using the intercom. It was finally decided to open the chamber at midnight on the 15th day. The chamber was flushed of the simulant gas and filled with fresh air, and immediately voices from the microphone began to object. Three different voices began begging, as if pleading for the life of loved ones to turn the gas back on. The chamber was opened and soldiers sent in to retrieve the test subjects. They began to scream louder than ever, and so did the soldiers when they saw what was inside. Four of the five subjects were still alive, although no one could brightly call the state of that any of them in life. The food rations past day five had not been so much as touched. They were chunks of meat from the dead test subjects' thighs and chests stuffed into the drain in the center of the chamber, blocking the drain and allowing four inches of water to accumulate on the floor. Precisely how much of the water on the floor was actually blood was never determined. All four surviving test subjects also had large portions of muscles and skin torn away from their bodies. The destruction of the flesh and exposed bone on their fingertips indicated that the wounds were inflicted by hand, not with teeth, as the researchers initially thought. Closer examination of the position and angles of the wounds indicated that most of it, if not all of them, were self-inflicted. The abdominal organs below the ribcage of all four test subjects had been removed, while the heart, lungs, and diaphragm remained in place. The skin and most of the muscles attached to the ribs had been ripped off, exposing the lungs through the ribcage. All the blood vessels and organs remained intact. They had just been taken out and laid on the floor, fanning out around, but still living bodies of the subjects. The digestive tract of all four could be seen to be working, digesting food. It quickly became apparent that what they were digesting was their own flesh that they had ripped off and eaten over the course of days. Most of the soldiers were Russian special operatives at the facility, but still many refused to return to the chamber to remove the test subjects. They continued to scream to be left in the chamber and alternately begged and demanded that the gas 
be turned back on, lest they fall asleep. To everyone's surprise, the test subjects put up a fierce fight in the process of being removed from the chamber. One of the Russian soldiers died from having his throat ripped out. Another was gravely injured by having his testicles ripped off and an artery in his left leg severed by one of the subject's teeth. Another five of the soldiers lost their lives if you count one that committed suicide in the weeks following the incident. In the struggle, one of the four living subjects had his spleen ruptured and he bled out almost immediately. The medical researchers attempted to sedate him, but this proved impossible. He was injected with more than 10 times the human dose of morphine and still fought like a cornered animal, breaking the ribs and arms of one doctor. When his heart was seen to beat for a full two minutes after he had bled out to the point where there was no more air in the vascular system than blood, even after it stopped, he continued to scream and flail for another three minutes, struggling to attack anyone in reach and just repeating the word, over and over, weaker and weaker, until he finally fell silent. The surviving three test subjects were heavily restrained and moved into a medical facility, the two with intact vocal cord continuously begging for the gas, demanding to be kept awake. The most injured of the three was taken to the only surgical operating room that the facility had. In the process of preparing the subject to have his organs placed back into his body, it was found that he was effectively immune to the sedative they had given him to prepare him for the surgery. He fought furiously against the restraints when the anesthetic gas was brought out to put him under. He managed to tear most of the way through a 4-inch wide leather strap on one wrist, even though the weight of a 200-pound soldier was holding the wrist as well. It took only a little more anesthetic than normal to put him under. In the instant his eyelids fluttered and closed, his heart stopped. In the autopsy of the test subject that died on the operating table, it was found that his blood had tripled the normal level of oxygen. His muscles that were still attached to his skeleton were badly torn, and he had broken nine bones in his struggle to not be subdued. Most of them were from the force his own muscles had exerted on them. The second survivor had been the first of the group of five to start screaming. His vocal cords destroyed, he was unable to beg or object to surgery, and he only reacted by shaking his head violently in disapproval. When the anesthetic gas was brought near him, he shook his head yes when someone suggested reluctantly. They tried the surgery without anesthetic and did not react for the entire six-hour procedure of replacing his abdominal organs and attempting to cover them with what remained of his skin. The surgeon presiding stated repeatedly that it should be medically impossible for the patient to still be alive. One terrified nurse assisting the surgery stated that she had seen the patient's mouth curl into a smile several times whenever his eyes met hers. When the surgery ended, the subject looked at the surgeon and began to wheeze loudly, attempting to talk while struggling. Assuming this must be something of drastic importance, the surgeons had a pen and pad fetched so that the patient could write his message. It simply said, Keep cutting. The other two test subjects were given the same surgery, both without anesthetic as well. Although they had to be injected with a paralytic for the duration of the operation, the surgeon found it impossible to perform the operation while the patients laughed continuously. Once paralyzed, 
the subject could only follow the attending researchers with their eyes. The paralytic cleared their system in an abnormally shortened period of time, and they were soon trying to escape their bonds. The moment they could speak, they were again asking for the stimulant gas. The researchers tried asking, why? Why, why, why do you need it? What is the point? It's injured you. Why they had ripped out their own guts and why they wanted to be given more gas again. Only one response was given. I must remain awake. All three subjects' restraints were reinforced and they were placed back into the chamber awaiting determination as to what should be done with them. The researchers facing the wrath of their military benefactors for having failed the stated goals of their project considered euthanizing the surviving subjects. The commanding officer, a former KGB agent, instead saw potential and wanted to see what would happen if they were put back into the gas. The researchers strongly objected, but they were overruled. In preparation for being sealed in the chamber again, the subjects were connected to an EEG monitor and had their restraints padded for a long-term confinement. To everyone's surprise, all three stopped struggling the moment it was let slip that they were going back into the gas. It was obvious that at this point, all three were putting up a great struggle to stay awake. One of the subjects that could speak was humming loudly and continuously. The mute subject was straining his legs against the leather bonds with all of his might. First left, then right, then left again for something to focus on. The remaining subject was holding his head off his pillow and blinking rapidly. Having been the first to be wired for EEG, most of the researchers were monitoring his brain waves in surprise. They were normal most of the time, but sometimes flatlined, unexpectedly. It looked as if he was repeatedly suffering from brain death before returning to normal. As they focused on the paper scrolling out of the brainwave monitor, only one nurse saw his eyes slip shut at the same moment his head hit the pillow. His brainwaves immediately changed to that of a deep sleep, then flatlined for the last time as his heart simultaneously stopped. The only remaining subject that could speak started screaming to be sealed in now. His brainwave showed the same flat lines as of one who had just died from falling asleep. The commander gave the orders to seal the chamber with both subjects inside, as well as three researchers. One of the named three immediately drew his gun and shot the commander point-blank between the eyes, then turned the gun on the mute subject and blew his brains out as well. He pointed his gun at the remaining subject still restrained to a bed as the remaining members of the medical and research team fled the room. I won't be locked in there with these things. Not with you. He screamed at the man strapped to the table. What are you? He demanded. I must know. The subject smiled. Have you forgotten so easily? The subject asked. We are you. We are the madness that lurks within you all, begging to be free at every moment in your deepest animal mind. We are what you hide from in your beds every night. We are what you sedate into silence and paralyze when you go into the nocturnal haven where we cannot tread. The researcher paused, then aimed at the subject's heart and fired. The EEG flatlined as the subject weakly choked out. So nearly 
Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Slender Man. Written by Anonymous. After waking up with a jolt, the girl laid in bed for a few seconds longer. Reaching over to switch on her bedside lamp, she tried to remember exactly what had stolen her from her sweet slumber. When she couldn't, the brunette swung her legs over the side of the bed and heaved herself up. Checking the time on her phone, she snorted when she saw that it was midnight, the witching hour. Knowing that sleep would only evade her, she left her bedroom for the kitchen, a good cup of coffee on her mind. As she passed by her front door, a chill spread like liquid fire down her spine. It's only winter, she told herself, focusing again on the coffee plant. Measuring out scoops, water, and preparing her cup kept her occupied. But as the dark liquid boiled, she had nothing left to keep her mind from wandering off. The chill returned and she couldn't help but glance behind her to the front door. It stood there innocently enough, just like always. The deadbolt was still in place and she couldn't see nothing wrong with it. Turning back to her coffee, she did her best to forget about that feeling. With her cup in hand, she started back towards her bedroom. As she walked by the front door, she decided that a quick glance out of the peephole would help her calm her nerves. The chill worsened with each step she took towards the door and farther away from the safety and warmth of her blankets. She pressed her empty hand against the cold metal door and took a deep breath before leading her eye to the peephole. At first, she could only see an inky blackness of someone seemed to swirl in itself. When she blinked in surprise, the void melted away. She wished it hadn't in its place. There stood what she could only guess was once a man. The limbs were long and unhumanly awkward with bulky joints branching off into several arms, not unlike the branches of a tree. The creature was draped in a black suit, somehow making the thing more nightmarish to her. The icing on the proverbial cake, however, was what passed as the hellish thing's face. It was as though her mind blurred the ghastly visage to spare itself further shock and horror. She shoved herself away from the door, with the hand still pressed against it, The scalding mug of coffee fell, the liquid burning her bare legs as she fell backwards and tried to crawl away from the door. She knew somehow that her mind hadn't been playing tricks on her. As she crap walked away from the door, she watched as tendrils as black as the void. She saw first, snake around through the cracks. The girl was trapped between the instinct to flee and the gut feeling to not turn back on the door. When the door jolted, the urge to flee overcame her, and she slipped into the burning liquid as she tried to make it back to her room. She knew deep down that she was trapping herself in a corner, but she had to get away from the door. The girl was halfway down the hallway when she heard the previously locked door creak open. She screamed and slipped into a wall, cracking her chin on it and stunning her. After that, there was only blackness. Nicole? A warm male voice snapped the woman out of her trance. As she turned around, she was met by one of her sister's doctors. She nodded, not sure if she should say anything or even she could find her voice if she did have anything to say. 
That morning, she had gotten into an urgent phone call from the hospital, saying that her sister Lindsay was there. Before they had even let her see her, the doctors had pulled her off to the side and insisted that they talk to her about what might have happened. Phrases like self-inflicted and assault had been thrown around and Nicole felt her mind reel. She still hadn't fully understood what they had been saying until she saw Lindsay with her own eyes. Her little sister had a bandage wrapped around her head, covering both her ears as well as her eyes. They said it was to keep her now deadened eyes from drying out and to try to keep infection out of the wounds Lindsay had made to her ears. The doctor had guessed that either she or someone else had jammed a pencil into them to keep her off balance or to deafen herself against something. There was the mix of first and second degree burns on her hands, legs, and feet from what we assumed was the coffee her neighbors found slipped all over the entry to her apartment. As Nicole walked into her sister's hospital room for the first time, she thought she had seen the silhouette of a man in the window that she knew was impossible. Her sister's room was on the third story of the hospital. Smile Dog Written by Anonymous I first met in person with Mary E. in the summer of 2007. I had arranged with her husband of 15 years, Terrence, to see her for an interview. Mary had initially agreed, since I was not a newsman, but rather an amateur writer, gathering information for a few early college assignments and, if all went well, some piece of fiction. We scheduled the interview for a particular weekend when I was in Chicago on an unrelated business. But at the last moment, Mary changed her mind and locked herself in the couple's bedroom, refusing to meet with me. For half an hour, I sat with Terrence as we camped outside the bedroom door, I listening and taking notes while he attempted fruitlessly to calm his wife. The things Mary said made little sense, but fit with the pattern I was expecting. Though I could not see her, I could tell from her voice that she was crying, and more often than not, her objections to speaking with me centered around an incoherent diatribe on her dreams, her nightmares. Terrence apologized profusely when he ceased the exercise and I did my best to take it in stride. Recall that I wasn't a reporter in search of a story, but merely a curious young man in search of information. Besides, I thought at the time I could perhaps find another similar case if I put my mind and resources to it. Mary E. was the sysop for a small Chicago-based bulletin board system in 1992 when she first encountered Smile.jpg and her life changed forever. She and Terrence had been married for only five months. Mary was one of an estimated 400 people who saw the image when it was posted as a hyperlink on the BBS, though she is the only one who has spoken openly about the experience. The rest have remained anonymous, or are perhaps dead. In 2005, when I was only in 10th grade, Smile.jpg was first brought to my attention by my interest in web-based phenomenons. Mary was the most often cited victim of what is sometimes referred as Smile.dog. The being Smile.jpg is reputed to display. What caught my interest, other than the obvious macabre elements of the cyber legend and my proclivity towards such things, was the sheer lack of information. 
usually to the point that people don't believe it even exists other than as a rumor or hoax. It is unique because though the entire phenomenon centers on a picture file, that file is nowhere to be found on the internet. Certainly many photo manipulations litter the web, showing up with the most frequency on sites such as the Imageboard 4chan, particularly the X-Focus Paranormal subboard. It is suspected that these are fakes because they do not have the effect the true smile.jpg is believed to have, namely sudden onset temporal lobe epilepsy and an acute anxiety. This purported reaction in the viewer is one of the reasons that phantom-like smile.jpg is regarded with such disdain since it's patently absurd, though depending on whom you ask, the reluctance to acknowledge smile.jpg's existence might be just as much out of fear as it is out of disbelief. Neither smile.jpg nor smile.doc is mentioned anywhere on Wikipedia, though the website features articles on such other perhaps more scandalous shock sites as hello.jpg or two girls one cup. Any attempts to create a page pertaining to smile.jpg is simultaneously deleted by any of the encyclopedia's many admins. Encounters with smile.jpg are the stuff of internet legend. Mary E's story is not unique. There are unverified rumors of smile.jpg showing up in the early days of Usenet and even one persistent tale that in 2002, a hacker flooded the forums of humor. There are unverified rumors of smile.jpg showing up in the early days of Usenet and even one persistent tale that in 2002, a hacker flooded the forums of humor and satire websites something awful with a deluge of smile.doc pictures, rendering almost half the forum's users at the time epileptic. It is also said that in the mid to the late 90s that smile.jpg circulated on Usenet and as an attachment of a chain email with the subject line, smile, God loves you. Yet despite the huge exposure these stunts would generate, there are very few people who admit to having experienced any of them, and no trace of the file or any link has been discovered. Those who claim that they have seen smile.jpg often weakly joke that they were far too busy to save a copy of the picture to their hard drive. However, all alleged victims offer the same description of the photo. A dog-like creature, usually described as appearing similar to a Siberian husky, illuminated by the flash of the camera, sits in a dim room that only the background detail that is visible being a human hand extending from the desk near the left side of the frame. The hand is empty, but is usually described as beckoning. Of course, most attention is given to the dog, or dog creature, as some victims are more certain than the others about what they claim to have seen. The muzzle of the beast is reputedly split in a wide grin, revealing two rows of very white, very straight, very sharp, very human-like teeth. This is, of course, not a description given immediately after viewing the picture, but rather a recollection of the victims who claim to have seen the picture endlessly, repeated in their mind's eyes, during the time they are, in reality, having epileptic fits. These fits are reported to continue indefinitely, often while the victims sleep, resulting in very vivid and disturbing nightmares. These may be treated with medication, though in some cases it is more effective than others. Mary E., I assume, was not on effective medication. That was why, after my visit to her apartment in 2007, 
I sent out feelers to several folklore and urban legend-oriented news groups, websites, and mailing lists, hoping to find the name of a supposed victim of Smile.jpg, who felt more interested in talking about his experience. For a time, nothing happened, and at a length, I forgot completely about my pursuits. Since I had begun my freshman year of college, I was quite busy. Mary contacted me via email, however, near the beginning of March 2008. Added by Moose Juice to jmlat.com From Mary at .net Subject, Last Summer's Interview Dear Mr. L., I am incredibly sorry about my behavior last summer when you came to interview me. I hope you understand that it was no fault of yours, but rather my own problems that led me to act out as I did. I realized that I could have handled the situation more differently. However, I hope you will forgive me at the time I was afraid. You see, for 15 years, I have been haunted by Smile.jpg. Smile.dog comes to me in my sleep every night. I know that sounds silly, but it is true. There is a disturbing quality about my dreams my nightmares, that makes them completely unlike any real dreams I have ever had. I do not move and I do not speak. I simply look ahead. The only thing ahead of me is a scene from the horrible picture. I see the beckoning hand and I see smile.doc. It talks to me. It is not a dog, of course, though I am not quite sure what it is really. It tells me it will leave me alone only if I do as it asks. All I must do, it says, is spread the word. That is how it phrases its demands. And I now know exactly what it means. It wants me to show it to someone else. And I could. The week after my incident, I received in the mail a manila envelope with no return address. Inside was a three and a half inch floppy disk drive. Without having to check, I knew precisely what was on it. I thought for a long time about my options. I could show it to a stranger, a co-worker. I could even show it to Terrence. As much as the idea disgusted me. And what would happen then? Well, if Smile.dog kept its word, I could sleep, finally. Yet, if it lied, what would I do? And who was to say something worse would not come for me if I did as the creature asked? So I did nothing for 15 years. Though I kept the disc hidden amongst my things. Every night for 15 years, Smile.dog has come to me in my sleep and demanded me that I spread the word. For 15 years, I have stood strong, though there has been many hard times. Many of my fellow victims on the BBS board, where I first encountered Smile.jpg, stopped posting. I heard some of them committed suicide. Others remained completely silent simply disappearing off the face of the web. They are the ones I worried about the most. I sincerely hope you will forgive me, Mr. L. But last summer, when you contacted me and my husband about the interview, I was near the breaking point. I decided I was going to give you the floppy disk. I did not care if Smile.dog was lying or not. I wanted it to end. You were a stranger, someone I had no connection with, and I thought I would not feel sorrow when you took the disk as a part of your research and sealed your fate. Before you arrived, I realized what I was doing was plotting to ruin your life. I could not stand the thought, and in fact, I still cannot. I am ashamed, Mr. L, and I hope that this warning 
will dismay you from further investigation of Smile.jpg. You may in time encounter someone who is, if not weaker than I, then more depraved, someone who will not hesitate to follow Smile.dog's orders. Stop while you are still whole. Sincerely, Mary E. Terrence contacted me later that month with the news that his wife had killed herself. While cleaning up the various things she left behind, closing email accounts and the like, he happened to open the above message. He was a man in shambles. He wept as he told me to listen to his wife's advice. He found the floppy disk, he revealed it, and he burned it until it was nothing but a stinking pile of blackened plastic. The part that most disturbed him, however, was how the disc had hissed as it melted. Like some sort of animal, he said. I will admit that I was a little uncertain about how to respond to this. At first I thought perhaps it was a joke, with the couple playing with the situation in order to get a rise out of me. A quick check of several Chicago newspapers online obituaries, however, proved that Mary E. was indeed dead. There was, of course, no mention of suicide in the article. I decided that, for a time at least, I would not further pursue the subject of Smile.jpg, especially since I had finals coming up at the end of May. But the world has an odd way of testing us. Almost a full year after I'd returned from the disastrous interview with Mary E., I received another email. Subject line, to jml at dot com. From Elsa here 82 at dot com. Subject, smile. Hello, I found your email address through a mailing list. Your profile said you are interested in Smile Dog. I have seen it. It is not as bad as everyone says it is. I have sent it to you here, just spreading the word. Smiley face. The final line chilled me to the bone. According to my email client, there was no file attachment called naturally smile.jpg. I considered downloading it for some time. It was mostly likely a fake I imaged, and even if it wasn't, I was never really wholly convinced of smile.jpg's peculiar powers. Mary E.'s account had shaken me, yes, but she was probably mentally unbalanced anyways. After all, how could a simple image do what smile.jpg was said to accomplish? What sort of creature was it that could break one's mind with only the power of the eyes? And if this photo is so absurd, then why did the legend exist at all? If I downloaded the image, if I looked at it, and if Mary turned out to be correct, if Smile.dog came to me in my dreams demanding I spread the word, what would I do? Would I live my life as Mary had, fighting against the urge to give in until I died? Or would I simply spread the word, eager to be put to rest? And if I chose the latter route, how could I do it? Whom would I burden it to? If I went through with my earlier intention to write a short article about Smile.jpg, I decided I could attach it as evidence, and anyone who reads the article, anyone who took interest, would be affected. And even assuming that Smile.jpg attached to the email was genuine, would I be capricious enough to save myself in that manner? Could I spread the word? Yes. Yes, I could. Stairs, written by Jack. In 1984, there lived an old widowed lady by herself in a two-story house 
who was completely immobile and bound to her wheelchair. Ever since the mysterious death of her husband, she required the aid of a carer who would visit her daily to help her with everyday tasks. What made it even more difficult was the fact that the two floors of the house were only connected by an old staircase inside. When the old lady needed to move between the two, the carer would have to carry her frail body like an infant up and down the stairs. One day the police received a call from the widow. There had been a murder. Since police units were scarce at the time, the murderer had already fled the scene. Only one detective was sent out to conduct the initial crime scene report. He arrived to see the carer's body splayed out on the floor with her vocal cords ripped out in a pool of blood on the first level of the house, with the old lady atop the staircase in her wheelchair watching him, still and silently, seemingly in shock. He could immediately rule her out as a suspect due to her inability to move up and down the stairs, and because she was trapped up there, the time of the murder took place. It was a similar death to her husband many years ago though, who had suffocated in his sleep on the couch downstairs. The detective put on his gloves, took photos, swabbed for evidence, and covered the body until the coroner arrived later on that day. All routine business. He scoped the house downstairs for any clues, then asked the old lady if he could look upstairs. She insisted that she was upstairs the whole time and no one apart from her had been there all day. But regardless of that, the detective ascended the staircase to which she hesitantly moved aside. Beyond the staircase, there was a narrow corridor with three closed doors alongside it. He checked behind each of the doors, the empty bedroom, nothing, the bathroom, nothing. He became anxious as he slowly made his way to the final bedroom where the old lady slept. He opened it and everything looked normal, a bed, a wardrobe, a bedside table with a lamp. He checked every wall of the room in horror as it was not what he discovered, but it was what he didn't discover that made him stop dead in his tracks and slowly reach for his gun on his holster. It was a detail so minor that they had completely overlooked it on the last investigation of the husband's death. There was no phone upstairs. He suddenly heard a noise as he withdrew his gun and rushed out the room, only to find an empty wheelchair atop the stairs. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Suicidemouse.avi Written by Anonymous So do any of you remember those Mickey Mouse cartoons from the 1930s? The ones that were just put on a DVD a few years ago? Well, I hear there is one that was unreleased to even the most avid classic Disney fans. According to the sources, it's nothing special. It's just a continuous loop, like Flintstones, of Mickey walking past six buildings that goes on for two or three minutes before fading out. Unlike the cutesy tunes put in though, 
The song in the cartoon was not a song at all, just a constant banging on the piano for a minute and a half before going to white noise for the remainder of the film. It wasn't the jolly old Mickey we've come to love either. Mickey wasn't dancing, not even smiling, just kind of walking as if you or I were walking, with a normal facial expression, but for some reason, his head tilted side to side as he kept this this small look. Up until a year or two ago, everyone believed that after it cut to black, and that was it. When Leonard Melton was reviewing the cartoon to be put in the complete series, he decided it was too junk to be on the DVD, but wanted to have a digital copy due to the fact that it was a creation of Walt. When he had a digital version up on his computer to look at the file, he noticed something. The cartoon was actually 9 minutes and 4 seconds long. This is what my source emailed to me in full. He is a personal assistant of mine, one of the higher executives at Disney, and an acquaintance of Mr. Melton himself. After it cut to black, it stayed like that until the sixth minute, before going back into Mickey walking. The sound was different this time. It was a murmur. It wasn't a language, but more like a gurgled cry. As the noise got more indistinguishable and loud over the next minute, the picture began to get weird. The sidewalk started to go in directions that seemed impossible based on the physics of Mickey's walking. And the dismal face of the mouse was slowly curling into a smirk. On the seventh minute, the murmur turned into a blood-curdling scream, the kind of scream painful to hear. And the picture was getting more obscure. Colors were happening that shouldn't even have been possible at the time. Mickey's face began to fall apart. His eyes rolled on the bottom of his chin like two marbles in a fishbowl, and his curled smile was pointing upward on the left side of his face. The buildings became rubble, floating in midair, and the sidewalk was still impossibly navigating in warped directions, a few seeming inconceivable with that we, as humans, know about direction. Mr. Malton got disturbed and left the room, sending an employee to finish the video and take notes of everything happening until the last second, and afterwards immediately store the disc of the cartoon into the vault. This distorted screaming lasted until 8 minutes and a few seconds in, and then it abruptly cuts to the Mickey Mouse face with the credits of the end of every video with what sounded like a broken music box playing in the background. This happened for about 30 seconds, and whatever was in the remaining 30 seconds, I haven't been able to get a silver of information about it. From a security guard working under me who was making rounds outside of this room, I was told that after the last frame, the employee stumbled out of the room with pale skin saying, Real suffering is not known, seven times before speedily taking the guard's pistol and offing himself on the spot. The thing I can get out of Leonard Malton was that the last frame was a piece of Russian text that roughly said, the sights of hell bring its viewers back in. As far as I know, no one else has seen it, but there has been dozens of attempts at getting the file on rapid share by employees inside the studios, all of whom have been promptly terminated of their jobs. Whether it got online or not is up to debate. But if rumors serve me right, it's online somewhere under suicidemouse.avi. If you ever find a copy of the film, I want you to never view it and to contact me by phone immediately.
Regardless of the time, when a Disney death is covered up as well as this, it means this has to be something huge. Get back at me. T.R. I've yet to find a copy of this. But it is out there. I know it. The End Written by Anonymous There's a common misconception that space is infinite. It's not. It's vast. So vast that none of the sentient societies within it confines can even fathom where the edge lies. The dust folk of Tavik are so obsessed with the holiness of their own soil that they don't even look at the skies. The humans of the Earth haven't managed to travel any farther than their own dead satellite. Even the immortal mind, computers of 29891204 have discovered faster than light travel, so recently that they're still eons away. The universe's trillions of races are all billions of years from reaching the end. But I'm waiting for them to get here. The Expressionless, written by T.J. Leah In June of 1972, a woman appeared in Cedar Senia Hospital in nothing but a white gown covered in blood. Now this itself should not be too surprising as people often have accidents nearby and come to the nearest hospital for medical attention. But there were two things that caused people who saw her to vomit and flee in terror. The first being that she wasn't exactly human. She resembled something close to a mannequin, but had the dexterity and fluidity of a normal human being. Her face was as flawless as a mannequin's, devoted of eyebrows and smeared in makeup. She had a kitten clenched in between her teeth, her jaws clamped so unnaturally tight around it to the point where no teeth could be seen. The blood was just squirting out of her gown and onto the floor. She then pulled it out of her mouth, tossed it to the side, and collapsed. From the moment she stepped through the entrance to when she was taken to the hospital room and cleaned up before being prepped for sedation, she was completely calm, expressionless, and motionless. The doctors had thought that it'd be best to restrain her until the authorities could arrive and she did not protest. They were unable to get any kind of response from her and most staff members felt too uncomfortable to look directly at her for more than a few seconds. But the second the staff tried to sedate her, she fought back with extreme force, two members of staff holding her down as the body rose up from the bed with the same blank expression. She turned her emotionless eyes towards the male doctor and did something unusual. She smiled. As she did, the female doctor screamed and let go of shock. In the woman's mouth were no human teeth but long, sharp spikes, too long for her mouth to close fully without causing any damage. The male doctor stared back at her for a moment before asking, What in the hell are you? She cracked her neck down to her shoulder to observe him, still smiling. There was a long pause. The security had been alerted and could be heard coming down the hallway. As he heard them, she darted forward, sinking her teeth into the front of his throat, ripping out his jugular and letting him fall to the floor, gasping for air as he choked on his own blood. She stood up and leaned over him, her face coming dangerously close to his as life faded from his eyes. She leaned closer and whispered to his ear, 
The doctor's eyes filled with fear as he watched her calmly walk away to greet the security man. His last ever sight would be watching her feast on them one by one. The female doctor who survived the incident named her the Expressionless. There was never a sighting of her again. The Itch, written by Anonymous. I can feel it again. I can feel the perversive, crawling itch. The kind of itch everyone gets from time to time. The kind of itch that causes an instinctive scratch, with no conscience thought driving the motion. Pure reflex. A dig with the fingernails. And the itch is relieved. And looking at the spot after scratching shows nothing. Unblemished skin and slowly developing red streaks where the nails have been dragged. But I don't scratch. I don't scratch. I don't scratch because last week I... I looked at the itch just before scratching. I looked and and I saw something. Something small. Something black. Something with legs and hairs and pinchers. And I couldn't stop the reflex. I couldn't stop my hand reaching for my leg. I couldn't stop my nails digging in, and I couldn't stop that, that that thing from climbing in through my damaged skin from disappearing into my flesh. I can feel the itch again. I can feel it. And this time it's different. This time, the itch is coming from the inside. Somerville. During the summer of 2003, events in the northeastern United States involving a strange, human-like creature sparked brief local media interest before an apparent blackout was enacted. Little or no information was left intact, as most online and written accounts of the creature were mysteriously destroyed. Primarily focused in a rural New York State, self-proclaimed witnesses told stories of their encounters with a creature of an unknown origin. Emotions range from extremely traumatic levels of fright and discomfort to an almost childlike sense of playfulness and curiosity. While their published versions were no longer on record, the memories remain powerful. Several of the involved parties began looking for answers that year. In early 2006, the collaboration had accumulated nearly two dozen documents dating between the 12th century and present day, spanning four continents. In almost all cases, the stories were identical. I've been in contact with a member of this group and was able to get some experts from their upcoming books. The Rake A Suicide Note, 1964 As I prepare to take my life, I feel it necessary to make sense of any guilt or pain I have introduced through this act. It is not the fault of anyone other than him, for once I awoke and felt his presence, and once I awoke and saw his form, once again I awoke and I heard his voice, and I looked into his eyes. I cannot sleep without fear or what I might next awake to experience. I cannot ever wake. Goodbye. 
found in the same wooden box were two empty envelopes addressed to William and Rose and one loose personal letter with no envelope. Dearest Lenny, I have prayed for you. He spoke your name. A journal entry, translated from Spanish, 1880. I have experienced the greatest terror. I have experienced the greatest terror. I have experienced the greatest terror. I see his eyes when I close mine. They are hollow, black. They saw me and pierced me. His wet hand. I will not sleep his voice. A Mariner's Log, 1691. He came to me in my sleep. From the foot of my bed, I felt a sensation. He took everything. We must return to England. We shall not return here again at the request of the rake. From a witness, 2006. Three years ago, I had just returned from a trip with my family for the 4th of July. We were all very excited after a long day of driving, so my husband and I put the kids right to bed and called it a night. At about 4 a.m., I woke up thinking my husband had gotten up to use the restroom. I used that moment to steal back the sheets, only to wake him in the process. I apologized and told him, I, I thought you got out of bed. When he turned to face me, he gasped and pulled his feet from the end of the bed so quickly, his knee almost knocked me out of the bed. He then grabbed me and said nothing. After adjusting to the dark for half a second, I was able to see what caused the strange reaction. At the foot of the bed, sitting and facing away from us, there was what appeared to be a naked man or a large hairless dog of some sort. Its body position was disturbing and unnatural, as if it was hidden by a car or something. For some reason, I was not instantly frightened by it, but more concerned as to its condition. At this point, I was somewhat under the assumption that we were supposed to help him. My husband was peering over his arm and knee, tucked into the fetal position, occasionally glancing at me before returning to the creature. In a flurry of motion, the creature scrambled around the side of the bed, then crawled quickly in a flailing sort of motion right along the bed until it was less than a foot away from my husband's face. The creature was completely silent, for about 30 seconds, or probably closer to five. It just seemed like a while. Just looking at my husband, the creature then placed its hand on its knee and ran into the hallway, leading into the kid's room. I screamed and ran for the light switch, planning to stop him before he hurt my children. When I got to the hallway, the light from the bedroom was enough to see it crouching and hunched over about 20 feet away. He turned around and looked directly at me, covered in blood. I flipped the switch on the wall saw my daughter, Clara. The creature ran down the stairs while my husband and I rushed to help our daughter. She was very badly injured and spoke only once more in her short life and said, he is the rake. My husband drove his car into the lake that night while rushing our daughter to the hospital. He did not survive. Being a small town, news got around pretty quickly. The police were very helpful at first and the local newspapers took a lot of interest as well. However, the story was never published, and the local television news never followed up either. For several months, my son Justin and I stayed in the hotel near my parents' house. After we decided to return home, I began looking for answers myself. I eventually located a man in the next town over who had a similar story, 
we got in contact and began talking about our experiences. He knew of two other people in New York who had seen the creature we now referred to as the rake. It took the four of us about two solid years of hunting on the internet and writing letters to come up with a small collection of what we believed to be accounts of the rake. None of them gave any details, history, or follow-ups. One journal had an entry involving the creature and its three first pages, and never mentioned it again. A ship's log explained nothing of the encounter, saying only that they were told to leave by the rake. That was the last entry in the log. There were, however, many instances where the creature's visit was one of a series of visits with the same person. Multiple people also mentioned being spoken to, my daughter included. This led us to wonder if the rake had visited any of us before our last encounter. I set up a digital recorder near my bed and left it running all night, every night for two weeks. I would tediously scan through the sounds of me rolling around in bed each day when I woke up. By the end of the second week, I was quiet, used to the occasional sound of sleep while blurring through the recording at eight times the normal speed. This still took almost an hour every day. On the first day of the third week, I thought I heard something different. What I found was a shrill voice. It was the rake. I can't listen to it long enough to even begin to describe it. I haven't let anyone listen to it yet. All I know is that I've heard it before, and I now believe that it spoke when it was sitting in front of my husband. I don't remember hearing anything at the time, but for some reason, the voice on the recorder immediately brings me back to that moment. The thoughts that must have gone through my daughter's head make me very upset. I have not seen the rake since it ruined my life, but I know that he has been in my room while I slept. I know and fear that one night I'll wake up to see him staring at me. The Smiling Man Credited to Blue Tidal. About five years ago, I lived downtown in a major city in the U.S. I've always been a night person, so I would often find myself bored after my roommate, who was decidedly not a night person, went to sleep. To pass the time, I used to go out for long walks and spend time thinking. I spent four years like that, walking alone at night and never once had a reason to feel afraid. I always used to joke with my roommate that even the drug dealers in the city were polite, but all that changed in just a few minutes of one evening. It was a Wednesday, somewhere between 1 and 2 in the morning, and I was walking near a police patrol park quite a ways from my apartment. It was a quiet night, even for a week a night. With very little traffic and almost no one on foot, the park, as it is most nights, was completely empty. I turned down a short street in order to loop back to my apartment when I first noticed him. At the far end of the street, on my side, was the silhouette of a man, dancing. It was a strange dance, similar to the waltz, but he finished each box with an odd forward stride. I guess you could say he was dance-walking, headed straight for me. Deciding he was probably drunk, I stepped as close as I could to the road to give him the majority of the sidewalk to pass me by. The closer he got, the more I realized how gracefully he was moving. He was very tall and lanky and wearing an old suit. 
He danced closer still, until I could make out his face. His eyes were open wide and wild, head tilted back slightly, looking off at the sky. His mouth was formed in a painfully wide cartoon of a smile. Between the eyes of the smile, I decided to cross the street before he danced any closer. I took my eyes off of him to cross the empty street. As I reached the other side, I glanced back and then he stopped, dead in my tracks. He had stopped dancing and was standing with one foot in the street perfectly parallel to me. He was facing me, but still looking skyward, smile still wide on his lips. I was completely and utterly unnerved by this. I started walking again, but kept my eyes on the man. He didn't move. Once I had put about half a block between us, I turned away from him for a moment to watch the sidewalk in front of me. The street and sidewalk ahead of me were completely empty. Still unnerved, I looked back to where he had been standing to find him gone. For the briefest moment, I felt relieved, until I noticed him. He had crossed the street, and he was now slightly crouched down. I couldn't tell for sure due to the distance and the shadows, but I was certain he was facing me. I had looked away from him for no more than 10 seconds, so it was clear that he had moved very fast. I was so shocked that I stood there for some time, staring at him, and then he started moving forward to me again. He took giant, exaggerated tiptoed steps, as if he were a cartoon character sneaking up on someone, except he was moving very, very quickly. I'd like to say at this point I ran away or pulled out my pepper spray or my cell phone or something, anything at all, but I didn't. I just stood there, completely frozen, as the smiling man crept toward me. And then he stopped again, about a car's length away from me, still smiling his smile, still looking at the sky. When I finally found my voice, I blurted out the first thing that came to mind. What I meant to ask was, What do you want? In an angry, commanding tone. What came out was a whimper. What? Regardless of whether or not humans can smell fear, they can certainly hear it. I heard it in my own voice, and that only made me more afraid. But he didn't react to it at all. He just stood there, smiling, and then after what felt like forever, he turned around, very slowly, and started dancing away. Just like that, not wanting to turn back to him again, I just watched him go, until he was as far away as possible, where he's out of sight. And then I realized something, he wasn't moving away anymore, nor was he dancing. I watched in horror as the distant shape of him grew larger and larger. And he was coming back my way. And this time he was running. I ran too. I ran until I was off to the side of the road and back onto a better lit road with sparse traffic. Looking behind me then, he was nowhere to be found. The rest of my way home, I kept glancing over my shoulder, always expecting to see his stupid smile. But he was never there. I lived in that city for six months after that night. And I never went out for another walk. There was something about his face that always haunted me. He didn't look drunk. He didn't look high. He looked completely and utterly insane. And that's a very, very scary thing to see. Twitchy Legs, written by Anonymous. I've had this weird twitch in my leg for weeks now. I researched it and the internet said that it was restless leg syndrome. Every single time I went to go to bed, my leg would kick, as if begging me to get up and run around. 
It was like my leg had more energy than my mind. It's been annoying, so I started taking potassium pills and other kinds of vitamins to make it stop. Well, it's been a day since I started taking the vitamins and the restless legs stopped. Except now I keep waking up with bruises all over my legs and I wake up with fresh cuts, too. That isn't the weird part, though. I'm used to waking up with random bruises. I bruise so easily, I could be sitting on my desk, get up, and somehow bruise my arm by bumping into my chair. But these bruises I wake up to now are, aren't like typical bruises where I slam my legs against the wall in my sleep. I swear these bruises look like fingers and claw scrapings down my calves. I'm starting to think that maybe there was a reason for my twitchy leg. I think, and this may sound insane, my body didn't want me to go to sleep because something is trying to take me. I don't think I'm going to sleep tonight. Squidward Suicide, written by Anonymous. I just want to start off by saying if you want an answer at the end, prepare to be disappointed. There just isn't one. I was an intern at Nickelodeon Studios for a year in 2005. For my degree in animation, it wasn't paid of course, but most internships aren't. But it did have some perks beyond education. To adults, it might not seem like a big one, but most kids at the time would go crazy over it. Now, since I worked directly with the editors and animators, I got to view the new episodes days before they aired. I'll get right to it without giving too many unnecessary details. They had very recently made the Spongebob movie, and the entire staff was somewhat sapped of creativity, so it took them longer to start up the new season. But the delay lasted longer for more upsetting reasons. There was a problem with the Series 4 premiere that set everyone and everything back for several months. Me and two other interns were in the editing room along the lead animators and sound editors for the final cut. We received the copy that was supposed to be Fear of the Krabby Patty and gathered around the screen to watch. Now, given that it wasn't final yet, animators often put a mock-up title card, sort of an inside joke for us, with phony often times lewd titles such as How Sex Doesn't Work, instead of Rockabye Bye Valve, when Spongebob and Patrick adopt a sea scallop. Nothing particularly funny, but work-related chuckles. So when we saw the title card Squigward Suicide, we didn't think more than just a morbid joke. One of the interns did a small throat laugh at it. The happy-go-lucky music plays as normal. The story begins with Squigward practicing his clarinet, hitting a few sour notes like normal. We hear Spongebob laughing outside, and Squigward stops, yelling at him to keep it down, and he has a concert that night and needs to practice. Spongebob says okay and goes to see Sandy and with Patrick. The bubble splash screen comes up, and we see the ending of Squigward's concert. This is when things began to seem off. While playing, a few frames repeat themselves, but the sound doesn't. At this point, the sound is synced up with the animation, so yes, that's not common. But when he stops playing, the sound finishes as if the skip never happened. There is a slight murmuring in the crowd before they begin to boo him. Not normal cartoon booing. This is common in the show, but you could very clearly hear malice in it. 
Squidward's in full frame and looks visibly afraid. The shot goes to the crowd, with Spongebob in center frame, and he too is booing, very much unlike him. That isn't the oddest thing though. What is odd is everyone has hyper-realistic eyes, very detailed, clearly not shot of real people's eyes, but something a bit more real than CGI. The pupils were red. Some of us looked at each other obviously confused, but since we weren't the writers, we didn't question its appeal to children yet. The shot goes to Squidward sitting on the edge of his bed, looking very forlorn. The view out of his porthole window is of a night sky, so it's very long after the concert. The unsettling part is that, at this point, there is no sound. Literally no sound. Not even the feedback from the speakers in the room. It's as if the speakers were turned off, though their status showed them working perfectly. He just sat there blinking in this silence for about 30 seconds. Then he started to sob softly. He put his hands, tentacles, over his eyes and cried quietly for a full minute, all the while a sound in the background very slowly growing from nothing to barely audible. It sounded like a slight breeze through a forest. The screen slowly begins to zoom into his face. By slow, I mean it's only noticeable if you look at the shots, ten seconds apart, side by side. His sobbing gets louder, more full of hurt and anger. The screen then twitches a bit, as if it twists in on itself, for a split second, then back to normal. The wind through the trees sound gets slowly louder and more severe, as if a storm is brewing somewhere. The eerie part of the sound and Squidward sobbing sounded real, as if the sound wasn't coming from the speakers, but as if the speakers were the holes the sounds were coming through from the other side. As good as the sound as the studio likes to have, they don't purchase the equipment to be that good to produce sound of that quality. Below the sound of the wind and the sobbing, very faint, something sounded like laughing. It came at odd intervals and never lasted more than a second, so you would have a hard time pinning where it came from. We watched this show twice, so pardon me if things sound too specific, but I've had time to think about them. After 30 seconds of this, the screen blurred and twitched violently, and something flashed over the screen, as if a single frame was replaced. The lead animation editor paused and rewinded frame by frame. What he saw was horrible. It was a still photo of a dead child. He couldn't have been more than six. The face was mangled and bloodied. One eye dangling over the unturned face popped. He was naked down to his underwear, his stomach crudely cut open and his entrails laying beside him. He was laying on some pavement that was probably a road. The most upsetting part was that there was a shadow of the photographer. There was no crime tape, no evidence tags or markers, and the angle was completely off for a shot designed to be evidence. It would seem that the photographer was the person responsible for the child's death. We were of course mortified, but pressed on, hoping that this was all just a sick joke. 
The screen flipped back to Squidward, still sobbing louder than before, and half body in frame. There was now what appeared to be blood running down his face from his eyes. The blood was so done in a hyper-realistic style, looking as if you touched it, you'd get blood on your fingers. The wind sounded now as if it were on a gale blowing through the forest. There were even snapping sounds of branches. The laughing, a deep baritone, lasting at longer intervals and coming more frequently. After about 20 seconds, the screen again twisted and showed a single frame photo. The editor was reluctant to go back. We all were, but he knew he had to. This time the photo was that of what appeared to be a little girl, no older than the first child. She was laying on her stomach, her barrets in a pool of blood next to her. Her left eye was too popped out and popped, naked except for underpants. Her entrails were piled on top of her above another crude cut along her back. Again, the body was on the street and the photographer's shadow was visible, very similar in size and shape to the first. I had to choke back vomit and, and one intern, the only female in the room, ran out. The show resumed. About five seconds after this second photo played, Squigward went silent, as did all the sound like it was when his scene started. He put his tentacles down, and his eyes were now done in hyper-realism, like the others were in the beginning of the episode. They were bleeding, bloodshot, and pulsating. He just stared at the screen, as if watching the viewer. After about ten seconds, he started sobbing, this time not covering his eyes. The sound was piercing and loud, the most fear-inducing of all as his sobbing was mixed with screams. Tears and blood were dripping down his face at a heavy rate. The wind sound came back, and so did the deep voice laughing. And this time, the still photo lasted for a good five frames. The animator was able to stop it on the fourth, and backed up. This time the photo was of a boy, about the same age, but this time the scene was different. The entrails were just being pulled out of the stomach. Wound by a large hand, the right eye popped and dangled, blood trickling down it. The animator proceeded. It was hard to believe, but the next one was different, but we couldn't tell what. He went on to the next, same thing. He went back to the first and played them quicker, and I lost it. I vomited on the floor. The animating and sound editors gasping at the screen. The five frames were not as if they were five different photos. They were played out as if they were frames from a video. We saw the hands slowly lift out the guts. We saw the kid's eyes focus on it. We even saw two frames of the kid beginning to blink. The lead sound editor told us to stop. We had to call the creator to see this. Mr. Hillenberg arrived about 15 minutes. He was confused as to why he was called down here. So the editor just continued the episode. Once the few frames were shown, all screaming, all sound again stopped. Squidward was just 
staring at the viewer full frame on the face for about three seconds. The shot quickly panned out, and that deep voice said, Do it. And we see in Squidward's hands a shotgun. He immediately puts the gun in his mouth and pulls the trigger. Realistic blood and brain matter splatter the walls behind him, and he flies back with the force. The last five seconds of the episode shows his body on the bed, on his side, one eye dangling on what's left of his head above the floor, staring blankly at it. Then the episode ends. Mr. Hillenberg is obviously angry at this. He demanded to know what the heck was going on. Most people left the room at this point, so it was just a handful of us watching it again. Viewing the episode twice only served to imprint the entirety of it into my mind and caused me horrible nightmares. I'm sorry I stayed. The only theory we could think of what the file was edited by someone in the chain from the drawing studio to hear. The CTO was called in to analyze what had happened. The analysis of the file did show it was edited over by new material. However, the timestamp of it was mere 24 seconds before we began viewing it. All the equipment involved was examined for foreign software and hardware as well as glitches. As if the timestamp may have glitched and showed the wrong time, but everything checked out fine. We don't know what happened, and to this day, nobody does. There was an investigation due to the nature of the photos, but nothing came of it. No child scene was identified, and no clues were gathered from the data involved nor physical clues in the photos. I never believed in unexplainable phenomenons before, but now that I have something happen and I can't prove anything about it beyond anecdotal evidence, I think twice about things. I really do. Thank you for joining me on this week's episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen to. If you haven't done so yet, please do a review. It helps me out. Everything that I use is in the description below. Thank you again for listening to Creepypasta Myths. I'll see you guys next week with a brand new episode.